0: comes from the book of Exodus, and it's chapter 40, it's on page 97, on the Pew Bibles. Then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. Place the ark of the covenant law in it, and shield the ark with a curtain. Bring in the table, and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand, and set up the lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the Ark of the Covenant law and put the curtain at the entrance of the tabernacle. Place the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting meeting place, the, <coughs> the tent of the meeting place. Place the, ba- the, the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put the water in it. Set up the courtyard around it and put the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. <clears throat> consecrate it and all its furnishings and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offering and all the utensils. Concentrate the al- consecrate the altar and it will be most holy. <clears throat> anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate them. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the, of the tent <clears throat> of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in sacred garments and anoint him and consecrate him, so that he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics. Anoint them just as you anointed the Father, so they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue throughout their generations. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. He took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark. Attached the poles to the ark and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and, shield, and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of the meeting place <coughs> of the meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the curtain, and he set the bread on, the t- on it before the Lord, as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of the meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrance incense on it as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, and Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar, I put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard and so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. If the cloud did not lift they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in sight of all the Israelites during their travels. Here ends our reading.
1: Thank you, Bruce. And uh, hello again. If you could have your Bibles open at Exodus chapter 40, that would be immensely helpful to me. And I imagine at least slightly helpful to you. Um, Let me pray and we will get underway. Heavenly Father, you draw near to us in so many ways, through your scriptures and then through your Son. And we want to uh, read your scriptures that we might draw close to you and understand your Son so that we might become more like him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, I was talking to an American visitor to us and I asked her what she thought was the dominant preoccupation Of people on the northern beaches. How would you answer that question? What's the dominant preoccupation of people on the northern beaches? She said it was leisure, you know, it was the kind of outdoor lifestyle, swimming and surfing and uh, running and hanging out at trendy cafes and, you know, hanging out with family and friends. And I think she's wrong. I didn't say that to her, but I think she's wrong. But I understand because when I first moved to the northern beaches, that's what I thought was the dominant preoccupation surfing right, hanging your toes off the front of the surfboard in the green room. I thought everyone would be obsessed with that. Now I know better. People are way more obsessed with coffee than surfing, aren't they? But here's the thing. People are actually way more obsessed with property than coffee or surfing. Don't you think so? And uh, if that's not you yet, I'm going to say this to the young people throughout the day, it will be when you eventually leave mum and dad's home. Dominant obsession of people who live here is property. And actually, if you don't believe me, check out the Saturday edition of the Manly Daily because the property section there is thicker than the whole rest of the newspaper. Renting, buying, building, renovating, upgrading, downsizing, selling, getting priced out of the market. Uh, It really is our obsession. And I don't say that in a flippant way. And that's fair enough in many ways. You've got to live somewhere, don't you? When I um, talk to builders and chippies around the place, uh, they all work very hard. It's very clear when they speak about their work. It's hard work. I also detect an underlying satisfaction. They've built something. They've made something tangible. You know, they can see the fruit of their work. And it might be there's just satisfaction in a job well done. Maybe there's satisfaction in creating something that's both useful and beautiful, hopefully, But I think somewhere in there, there is satisfaction because they have prepared a place that is ready to be inhabited. They've taken what was previously unfit for living or less fit for living and they've prepared it to be occupied, to have people present within it. And as we come to our final week in the last chapter of Exodus, we discover something quite similar. There has been this great building project to create a place that is ready for someone to inhabit and that someone is none other than God himself. How would you go about creating a place for God to live? Well, that's what we'll be thinking about today as we look at the topic of tabernacle. And it'll speak right into our lives, those of us who are obsessed with property as i say it's our last week in the book of exodus Uh, you remember seven days ago last week we gathered with the israelites who had previously been delivered from slavery in egypt by god we traveled with them as they exited out of that slavery through the red sea through the thirsty desert to mount sinai the mountain of god and we saw god deliver them the law the 10 commandments and we saw that it was good in fact, not just good for Israel, but good for us as well. But you remember, that was way back in Exodus chapter 20. And today's reading was from chapter 40. Last week was the halfway point in the book. Uh, today was the end point, And you might be wondering, well, what the heck has gone on in between? Well, what's happened is the action of that, those first 20 chapters has really started to slow. And the back half zeroes in on this building project, the building of the tabernacle. It's kind of like a fancy tent. And they're given very extensive instructions about this project. In fact, it's much more than a tent, but it's not quite a palace either. And it starts, the action kind of starts in chapter 25, verse 8, where God says to Moses, Have them, the Israelites, make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then the instructions begin, and they are. They're extensive and they're elaborate and they're very specific instructions. That's why we read the whole chapter, just to kind of catch up some of the flavour. There's instructions for the building of the ark. That's kind of the chest that would contain the twin tablets of the Ten Commandments. There's instructions for building a table. Uh, a lampstand and oil for the lampstand and then an altar for offerings and then the courtyard around the tabernacle and then priests who would serve in the tabernacle and the clothes they would wear and the basin they would use as well as instructions for this tabernacle this tent itself i mean you've got to think kind of like lego booklet level of detail not um you know, a couple of dodgy pictures and two lines of instructions in a foreign language, which is what you get when you order flat pack furniture online. Okay, much more like Lego. Actually, what you want to think is Noah's Ark, where very detailed directions were given by God and were carried out with obedient precision. See, very detailed indeed. Then... Um, Kind of in the middle, the, the text describes this disastrous episode where Israel worshipped an idol in the form of a golden calf, immediately breaking the first two commands that would just been given by God, which was ridiculous, but really quite devastating... But then from chapter 35 onwards, we get what is almost another rehashing of all the instructions. This time the Israelites, led by a spirit-filled craftsman, kind of master builder, called Bezalel, he gets on with the job of building it. And it looks something like this. That gives you a bit of an idea of what it ended up looking like. But as they started to carry out the work oddly, it starts to resemble kind of the Garden of Eden. There there are these angelic beings that are carved. And this lampstand that I mentioned, it's got these kind of flower-like cups that come out of branch-like arms, and it sort of sits there in the middle of the tabernacle, almost as if it was another tree of life, almost as though this was the Garden of Eden recreated. And the Israelites had obviously done a better job of building the tabernacle than they had of building um, the golden calf idol. Because in chapter 39, verse 42, which is on the same page as the Bibles, which I'm sure are open in front of you, have a look. Chapter 39, verse 42, it says this The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. Ripper. So, sorry, I didn't say Ripper. I just said that. So Moses blessed them. And you look at that and you think, well, even that's a bit like creation, isn't it? Where God looks at all that he had made and he saw that it was good and he blessed it. And you do wonder, what is God trying to recapture here? What is he trying to recreate? Let me ask you another question. What does it tell you that most of the back half of Exodus is concerned with the building project? Is it just the case that God has the same preoccupation? Is it the case that the Israelites have the same preoccupation as people who live on the northern beaches? Of course not. It tells you that the whole book of Exodus is not just about liberation from slavery. It tells you that the whole book is not just about living as God's people after they've been saved. Remember, we've said that consistently, law, obedience follows salvation, it follows rescue. But actually, it shows us more than that, that God wants to live among his people. He wants to be with us. He doesn't just want to save us and then guide us from a great distance, he wants to live among us. How about that? One of my former bosses is a marathon runner and a triathlete, and he was uh, swimming one day at North Sydney Pool. You know that pool right underneath the Harbour Bridge? Relax, you don't have to go across the bridge. It's okay, right underneath. And uh, he was getting changed, and he noticed the fellow next to him was... um, putting on one of those racing swimming suits like we'll see at the Olympics in Rio in just a short while and my former boss who is honestly one of the most generous blokes you could meet looked at him and thought to himself who does he think he is Ian Thorpe or someone well not someone it was actually Ian Thorpe (laughs) that's not awkward at all is it in the presence of greatness a friend of mine once went to Dublin, Ireland with the sole purpose of tracking down Irish mega rock band U2. And lots of people do that, by the way. They all get turned away. But My friend went up to the front door of the recording studios in Windmill Lane, knocked on the door, and was not only allowed in, but was able to have a conversation with Bono and The Edge for over an hour. In the presence of greatness. But then a new problem emerges. What do you do? <laughs> When you're in the presence of greatness because you can't just say i really like your music for an hour that's just weird Uh, that great presence actually sets up a great problem doesn't it and that is one of the key questions at the back of exodus the israelites have seen the presence of god in the pillar of cloud and in the pillar of fire that kind of guides them through the desert and they saw the sound of light show That accompanied the presence of God at Mount Sinai. But both of those encounters were from afar, they were from a distance. Moses obviously has closer encounters with God than the rest of the people. I mean, God spoke with him out of the burning bush in chapter 3 and then throughout the book. But in chapter 33, just after the golden calf episode, just after Moses had pleaded with God to spare the people... Almost in a kind of a a, a cheeky way, he says to God, I want to see you. I want to see you. This is what God says to Moses, whom he loved. My presence, Moses, will go with you, it will. And I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And though when Moses spoke with God, his Moses' face would glow, beam radiantly, he couldn't see God and live. God had to hide him in a little cleft in a rock to spare him as he passed. So the question is, how can the holiness and the glory of God's presence sit alongside human beings? How, how can that work? That's the problem that's being posed. And in fact, it's the same question that we've been asking ever since the first humans were expelled from the Garden of Eden. How can God... God dwell in the presence of humanity. How can humans exist amidst the weighty presence of the divine? How can we recapture that unbroken relationship? And that's totally the tension that's being set up at the at the end of Exodus. Have a look in your Bible's verse 1, chapter 40, verse 1. It's the first day of the first month. In other words, the anniversary of them coming out of Egypt. And Moses begins the task of assembling the tabernacle with all its associated furnishings and paraphernalia. And he follows the instructions of God. Did you notice? Over and over again it said, Just as the Lord commanded. First he erects the tabernacle. And does God come down and fill it with his presence? No. Then he sets up all the furniture inside the tabernacle, inside that tent. Does God come down now? No. Then he set up all the furniture that went on the outside. Does God come down? No. And when Moses sets up the fence around the courtyard, it tells us in verse 33, Moses finished the work. And everyone is just waiting for that one single thing that Moses cannot do for God to come down and dwell with his people in this tabernacle, this new tent of meeting, this reimagined Eden as he said he would. Now, folks, can you feel that tension Everything has been built just as God commanded. Moses set up everything just as God commanded so that the people could be in the presence of the living God. It's every bit as climactic as the rescue through the Red Sea. Every bit as climactic as when God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments from atop Mount Sinai. God was about to come down to them. Now read with me verses 34 and 35. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses could not enter because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You see they're all ready for it and then when God comes down not even Moses could go in not even the one who spoke with God as a man speaks with his friend not the one who was, the, who was given the law of God on stone tablets. Not the one who saw the presence of God pass before him as he hid in the cleft of a rock. Not even Moses, the great mediator who both represented God to the people and who pleaded on the people's behalf to God. The whole point of the tabernacle or the tent of meeting was to give people access to the presence of God. But when the presence of God came down, they could not go in. Not even Moses... It's an unusual climax. Scratch it. It's a devastating climax. And what it reveals to us is that the glory of the Lord is more glorious, the weightiness of his divine being is far weightier than we dare to imagine. It's an unusual and devastating climax which is only partly mitigated by the final words of Exodus in which that cloud of God's presence was always with the people, guiding them, guarding them on all their travel. God would be with them as they moved along but it doesn't resolve that great tension at the end of Exodus which the back half is devoted to setting up. Can God dwell in the presence of his people? We thought it might happen. But indeed, there's a problem. I don't know how you feel about this, but it seems to me that some of the pleasure of suspense and tension is kind of a lost pleasure these days, at least when it comes to film and television. Uh, Some of us, um, on the older end of things, by which of course I mean just older than me and above... um, you, you remember those times when you, you'd have to wait a whole week in between watching an episode of your favorite show, and uh, when one season finished, you might have to wait like six months or even longer for the next season of this show to resume. Or with films, you'd have to wait, after seeing them in the cinema, you'd have to, in the city, because that's the only place where there were cinemas you'd have to wait like years. ..for it to be shown on TV on Sunday night at 8.30. And and often it was years after it finished its run on the cinema. But now what we do is we binge-watch our favourite TV shows, don't we? And we catch a whole season in two nights. I mean, we're totally destroying our eyes, but it sort of feels worth it at the time, doesn't it? And you don't have to wait for a number of years to watch your movie to be shown on telly anymore. In fact, you can't even rent it at the video store because that's gone, it's just another cafe now... Um, You have to download it or you get to stream it directly, sometimes pretty much straight after the movie has finished its run in the cinema, which is very convenient, but something is lost in just not having that kind of suspense to sit in where you might wonder for like six months what your favourite characters are going to do with this question that was left open at the end of last season. And when it comes to Exodus, I just can't make up my mind whether the tension at the end of Exodus is sort of resolved like old school TV, it takes ages, or whether it's more like modern internet streaming, whether we sit in the suspense and just feel it, Or whether it's resolved quickly. So you make your mind up. But the book of Exodus does leave us hanging with that question. Can God really live among his people? And the book of Leviticus, which follows right along, gets underway, dealing with it almost straight away. Did you know the very first word in the book of Leviticus in the original language is and? It it makes for very bad English But it does show us that Leviticus just starts where Exodus left off. And if you were to read or even just flick through those opening pages of Leviticus, you see that it tackles the matter of sacrifices. How can a holy God dwell among sinful people? It might be possible if their sin is somehow dealt with, cleansed, purified, covered over or atoned for. And in many ways, that's what Leviticus is about. It's about how to make people who are naturally stained by their sin holy so they can be in the presence of the God who so loves them that he doesn't want to just rescue them and guide them from afar. He wants to actually be with them. But you know, friends, it doesn't feel like a completely satisfying sort of resolution to that tension because as the people keep sinning, more and more sacrifices keep needing to be offered and it really seems like a temporary fix rather than a permanent solution to this riddle how can people be in the presence of the holy god and even later when the tabernacle which is you know a kind of a portable tent morphs into being a permanent settled temple in the promised land under the reign of solomon it doesn't change this basic quandary how can god dwell among his people sinful as they continue to be the sacrifices in Leviticus and later just don't seem like a permanent solution. Which is why we open our New Testaments to John chapter 1 with great interest. Uh, and we read in chapter 1 verse 14 these intriguing words, The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory The glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word, that's talking about Jesus, who from the beginning is also God, became flesh and dwelled among us. Literally that word dwelling there is tabernacled. Right? The antennas should be up. God became flesh in the person of Jesus and he tabernacled with us. His people. And here somehow is a resolution to that tension, that devastating anticlimax at the end of Exodus. God came down into the tabernacle there and the people couldn't go in. And though they would be able to go into the tabernacle, the tent, or later the temple in Jerusalem, they still had this problem of only being able to enter into the presence of God if atonement was made for their sins. And that required sacrifice after sacrifice being offered. But with the person of Jesus, God came down in a different way. I mean, it says right there, still full of glory and grace and truth. But now, extraordinarily, you could be in his presence without burning up. You could see his face without dying. God was now dwelling with his people in a tabernacle, not made of wood, and stone and cloth, but in the tabernacle of a human being, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I presume... The only way that people could be in his presence without being consumed by his presence is because he himself was the sacrifice. A great once for all sacrifice when he died on the cross that would cover over or atone for the sins of the people forever should they turn and trust in him. God would no longer dwell with his people in a tent or in a temple but in the person of his son. And now that Jesus has returned to God the Father in heaven, God now continues to dwell with us by his beautiful and wonderful Holy Spirit. Last week we were talking about the law and I wanted us to see the great beauty of the law and in many ways the continuity between Israel back then and us today because as Christians we normally miss that. But you see, the Holy Spirit, that's a point of discontinuity, a point of difference a great advantage for us because we have God with us by his Spirit. And it's his Spirit who makes Jesus known to us. It's the Holy Spirit who moves our hearts to love God and obey all the words of his law. The Spirit is God's very presence with us, our helper and our guide. And the New Testament in places like 1 Corinthians remind us that not only are our bodies, our individual bodies, temples of the Holy Spirit, so that we carry him around in our own skin, but that together, the local gathered community of Christians is a temple of the Spirit, no matter what the condition of the building in which they meet. So God continues to dwell among us. He continues to desire proximity to us, firstly through the life of his son among us, and then when his son returned to heaven through his own spirit, who's taken up residence in our spirits. Now, friends, the real hope of the Christian faith, the real hope of the Christian person, is that we will be with God forever. That's the hope. In Revelation 21, verse 3, it tells us these things. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, with people, and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. And later in the same chapter, John says, I did not see a temple in the city. Don't need one of those. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, that's Jesus, are its temple. Though God gave very specific instructions about the the construction of the tabernacle, at the end of Exodus, came down in glory but couldn't dwell with his people. Not close, not even with Moses. Moses. They would be able to enter his presence if sins were atoned for by the offering of sacrifices, but that was over and over and over again and would never be a lasting solution. In fact, the sacrifices only really pointed towards the coming of a great once-for-all sacrifice, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though God, became flesh and dwelt among us, a tabernacle in human form, where God and his people might brush up against one another before he died on a cross to atone for or deal with the sins of people forever. And leaving us, he has given us his spirit so that God continues to dwell with us, those of us who are Christians, until the day Jesus returns to take us to be with him forever. And friends, whatever heaven will be like, splendid city or a beautiful garden, which are just some of the depictions of it in the scriptures, the absolute epicenter of our hope is that God will be there, that he will dwell with us, that we will dwell in the presence of Jesus, that we will see his face and live. Can you imagine that? We often think heaven will be like an impossibly white Caribbean beach or some kind of sanctified Disneyland in the sky doesn't really matter what it's like if God is there and we're with him don't you reckon though it will have a physicality that's for certain and we won't be floating around in heaven like some strange disembodied spirits for all eternity I don't reckon it matters if it resembles the slums of Calcutta or the ghettos of Detroit if God is there it will be full of delight now I'm confident it won't resemble either of those things but let me say even if it were an impossibly white Caribbean beach and God were not there, it would be hell without him. It would be. You know, God has always desired to be close to us, to live among us, to dwell with us. At the end of Exodus, he leaves the mountain and he comes to dwell with the people. In other words, he doesn't remain remote from a messy world, And no longer would the people go up to God, for God came down to them. But what more could he do to come down and draw close to us than to send his own son to give us his own spirit and then to take us home to be with him for all eternity? He's not holding back. He's not playing hard to get or hard to please. But I wonder if you are. And I know that sometimes I am. If you do not trust God, the message of this wonderful book of Exodus is that he is good to take you from where you are to perfection forever with him. We see in Exodus that God wants to dwell not just at the fringes of Israel's life, but at the very center of things. And we've seen that he's ready for the journey, that he's up for an exit and that he's with his people for the long haul. And so today I want to say, is it a day to turn and trust in him? Is there sin which is entangling you today that would just be great to confess and be free of so you can draw near to God? If complacency is mastering you, Today is a day to see afresh all that he has done to be with you and to draw near. If bitterness or jealousy is consuming you, do you not see that if you have him, you have everything? You lack nothing? Without him, you have no good thing. We on the northern beaches are obsessed with buildings, property. But the whole point of buildings surely is the people who live in them. And friends, God wants to live among us, dwelling with us. Through the work of Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, and then in perfection evermore. And I would suggest in finishing that if he is not holding back, then perhaps you and I should draw near. Let's close by praying to him. I'm going to give you a moment to do business with God if you need to. Maybe there's sin to confess, maybe there's complacency to repent of. Maybe there's bitterness or jealousy to move beyond. So a few moments and then I'll lead us in prayer. Yes, dear Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have always wanted to dwell amongst your people. We praise you even more for sending your Son into the world to tabernacle among us. And then, of course, to die as the great sacrifice so we can be in the presence of God and live We thank you for your spirit, who is no one less than God within us, and we entrust to you our great exit as you promise to take us to be with you in heaven in perfection forevermore. Forgive us for those times where we have held back in fear or complacency or jealousy. We recognize that you are not holding back. So help us to draw near, we pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.